Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to our series in American History One. This is the 34th podcast in our series on American history. In our previous podcast, number 33, we continued our discussion of the American rise of American industry, looking at the impact that the railroad was having on citizens throughout the United States. We looked at the problems of congestion that the railroads eventually would find themselves with, having and finding themselves entangling with over 140,000 miles of rail lines throughout the lower 48 states. We looked at the impact that the role of government was going to take, was going to place itself in, in terms of debating or getting involved with government intervention of big corporate regulation. We also then looked at the emergence and growth of cities where we ended with by looking at the lack of zoning laws within industry standards. In this podcast now, as we continue on, as we move on with our transportation revolution discussion, as well as get into the industrial revolution, we begin by looking at city development and the need for health reasons alone to be able to start separating people that were living in Areas where big industry was going to ta- was going to get established, as well as for areas that would be zoned only for residential living. What the United States found itself doing through our individual states was establishing zones of improvement. In other words, taking former un- formerly undeveloped land and beginning to start putting these lines to it, or through it, or around it, I should say, in order to be able to give our areas that this would be demarcated for industrial. This would be a residential zone. This would be a retail zone. In other words, our land throughout the United States was now going to get slapped with these zone improvement plan codes in order to be able to determine the quality of life or help the quality of life and be able to start organizing where business could set up retail, where big industry could settle in, and where residents could seek shelter and build their own homes without the concerns of big industry being right next door. These zone improvement plan codes would eventually get longer and longer. And I'll give you a moment if you'd like to think about what your zone improvement plan code is. Because if you live in the United States, I'd be willing to bet you there are none of my listeners that are living in an area that does not have a zone improvement plan code attached to your residence. Whether it's a condo, townhouse, huge farm or plantation, or a residential home, you live within a zone improvement plan area. Therefore, you have a code. And if you're scratching your head wondering what possibly that five or nine digit code is, let me just ask you by its acronym, what's your zip code? That's where we get that term from. The zip codes began, as I say, was starting to 
organize what was being settled in where. Where was industry going versus retail versus commercial versus residential? We then started seeing that as our cities started to get larger and larger and busier, and in some cases more unsafe until we eventually get to more zone improvement plan codes and regulations, what we found is that the workers needed to live very close to the city, but the hourly workers didn't have the money for fancy pieces of properties and large estates and mansions. So what happens is we began to start seeing a zone of transit theory being established or a theory of zone, zone uh, transit zone, I should say, where land value does not always decrease the further away from city center, the way mythically we might tend to believe when just thinking about that off the top of our head. In other words, land value is the highest in city center. And this is the reason why your national and international chains will open up their stores there because they have the highest amount of foot traffic. Your headquarters will be established in city center. But as one gets away from the big buildings and the heart of, heart of the industrial city itself, that's where we get into the back of the yards neighborhoods, neighborhoods and the stockyards. Then beyond that would be the properties of the individual workers, and in some cases, tenement housing. Yes, the land value is continuing to decrease the further you get away from city center, but that doesn't continue to be the case. The reason being is that property values will actually start going up once we get several miles from city center. Why? Because that's where your entrepreneurs live. That's where your future millionaires are going to live. They're going to have the huge houses, the large pieces of property, and that'll maintain, it'll maintain it that way for a few decades, where lo and behold, as the city becomes more populated, more business and industry move in, you have to bring in more hourly workers. Eventually, they start crouching up on those multi-million dollar pieces of property, building in front of them and then behind them with their little tracts of land. As a result, you'll see, you can see it in the Cleveland area, you can see it in the Toledo area, uh, cities in Florida, specifically in Chicago on the south side, where you have these mansions surrounded by these smaller houses. Well, then where's the second generation of entrepreneurs moving? Where's that second generation of old money? choosing where to live because where mom and dad lived or grandma and grandpa lived, well, that's just too congested now. It's too crowded. So what happens is that they break away from that original band of expensive housing and they go several miles further away from the city where again, property values will go down and then come up once again. So the zone of transit theory states again, that land value doesn't always decrease the further away from city center. It goes down, comes up and then goes down again. And there's that undulating or that wave in property values when one sets, gets away from zero, zero address of city center of First Street and A Avenue, for example. That then proceeds our, gets us into the discussion of what becomes known as the Industrial Revolution. Like the Transportation Revolution, the term revolution itself is not to be used lightly. With the transportation, again, I, I covered or we discussed what set or mode of primary transportation was going out, animal power, 
in its place, mechanized power. Well, what about with the Industrial Revolution? What's going out and what's coming in? What's going out in the Industrial Revolution is work being done primarily or only by the human hand or a set of human hands or human legs and feet, or in some cases, animal power. And what's going to, of course, be coming in its place, mechanized power. In other words, machinery. Before we get into the minutia of the Industrial Revolution, and we'll look at those pre-revolutionary periods as well, I want to now be able to help put into perspective in a way, with much better way than I can do myself, in a book called As the Future Catches You by Juan Enriquez. If one attempts to buy this book, there's two editions of it. I have the original version, published around 2010, as I recall. But the as the book, as the future catches you, Juan Enriquez, and I'll spell that last name for you, E-N as in Nancy, R-I-Q-U-E-Z as in zebra. He's not a historian. He actually has a business degree. And as we continue along in our podcasts on American history, as well as my ones in world histories, we head closer and closer to the 20th century. You'll find that I start picking up more and more experts in reading from the research as we get into my area of expertise, both in military history and in American presidential history. What you'll find, though, is that rarely will I actually be picking up a book written by an historian. And there's nothing wrong with historians. I'm one of them. But the problem is if I only rely on historical or his, uh, analysis by historians, I tend to keep a myopic view of the topic that I'm reading about. It's part of the reason why when I'm looking to read yet another book on pick your war, pick your president, pick your time era in American or world history, oftentimes I'm looking for another professional analysis outside of the world of history. And in this case, somebody that has a business degree, more or less giving their analysis or their interpretation of the events that have taken place before our time. And on pages 19 through 21, I want to briefly just read to you, and it's relatively short because the book is written in a very, very engaging way with some words being very large and some words being very small in a way, to, again, to emphasize the importance of some of the things that he's writing about. And as he puts, starting again on page 19, in 1750, someone working in the world's richest country was only about five times wealthier than someone working in the poorest one. As long as economic development depended primarily on agriculture, it was hard for one region's work to be any more valuable than that of its neighbor. Perhaps a more disciplined population, one that got up to milk the cows earlier and had better land and better leaders, yeah, they might be able to accumulate a little bit more wealth, but not a great deal more. To the point, that all of this changed with the Industrial Revolution. Through to the 18th century, Europe's average yearly economic growth was only 0.07% per year. But again, the Industrial Revolution was going to drastically change that. Suddenly, with the advent of modern machinery, one person's labor could be multiplied a hundred and then a thousandfold. 
because it was a machine doing most of the work, not one's individual's hands. Countries that developed machines became far richer. A civilization with a great history, a fantastic culture and pedigree, but also one that did not find a way to multiply its citizens' output found itself becoming far poorer. In 1840, just as the Industrial Revolution was beginning, two great states, China and India, together accounted for 40% of world trade. Why? Because those two countries produced some of the best and most luxurious handmade goods in the known world, silks, jewels, and jade. Meanwhile, Europe and the United States, they were getting dirtier. They were producing far more products, however, and each product was getting far cheaper. Take, for example, Henry Ford when he built his first Model T in 1908. He could not sell it for less than $900 unless he wanted to lose his profit margin. There were cars that were more luxurious, cars that were better made, and cars that were even cheaper. But Ford industrialized. He standardized his mass production. The customer can have any color he wants, Henry Ford once said, as long as it's black. Because again, that helps with the mass production. Four years later, after starting production, a Model T dropped from $900 to $690. Two years later, just before World War I, a now better Model T was selling for $200 less, only $490. And Ford was selling more than 1 million cars per year. By 1925, Henry Ford's Model T's that were once selling for $900 were now less than $300. But at the same time, India and China refused to industrialize. To the point that by the end of the 1900s, the average Hindi lived in extreme poverty. Sure, they had the beautiful palaces and the beautiful places of worship, but by the end of the 20th century, China and India together were only publishing 3.9% of all the world's science papers. So taken together, those two countries no longer represented 40% of world trade. It had shrunk drastically to 3.4%. Needless to say, as I put Juan Enriquez's book to the side now, needless to say, that is significantly changing. You might have been attempting to argue, say, wait a minute, I'm going to email you, Professor, because I know that China and India are booming today. Yes, they are. To the point that sometimes American presidents attempting to run for re-election from the mid-1990s on were criticized because they'd point, the challengers would point to India and China and say, hey, their economies are growing faster than ours is year after year. Well, of course they are, because they got started in industrialism a lot later. How many times have you attempted to call customer support and found that you were talking to somebody in India? The reason being is it wasn't until that could not too many years ago that India finally dropped or repealed the law that allowed people to use telecommunication lines for business purposes, for profitability. 
Nothing wrong with it. We once regulated industry the same way until we found out that the government taking its hands off is better for the people. So yes, China and India are booming today. In 2011 alone, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Sure, they're booming. So is Russia. So is Brit. Uh, excuse me, Brazil. To the point that they are considered the BRIC industries. B-R-I-C, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Those are the four economies, not all at the same pace, of course, with Russia coming in at the tail end there. However, they are, of course, improving because they're getting introduced to industrialism a lot later than America did and the Western European powers. So keep in mind just a, a quick overview of the impact of a revolution that we're just beginning to start discovering now in our series in world history. In the pre-revolutionary days, as Juan Enrique started discussing, in other words, in the 1700s on back, in the pre-revolutionary America, households basically were the center of one's life. You grew your own food. You basically created almost everything that your body and or your family needed. Those things that you were good at producing, you tended to produce more. And you would trade that for products that maybe you weren't that good in producing. Your entire business market was only literally a couple of hours walk at most to the furthest extent. Everything was local until industrialism came in. As a result of that, an individual that once, maybe at their time, produced the greatest products with the use of leather, tanning the hides, tearing them, sewing them, stitching them, dyeing them one particular color, there is no doubt that an individual merchant attempting to try to make ends meet anywhere in the United States in our burgeoning cities in small towns could make a decent living as a leather worker, producing wallets, purses, and bags, and belts, and shoes, and hats. But then industrialism came in. Yes, in the next town over, that former competitor of yours, a friendly competitor, because again, business was local, but you would help one another out when you were down on raw materials or you needed supplies. And you found out that that former competitor of yours now has sold out to industry and has converted his merchant shop or her merchant shop into an industrial shop now where machines are making those wallets, belts, and hats, etc. But no, you say, you dig in your heels, I'm going to continue to make my products by hand just as my parents did and grandparents did and great-grandparents did. And I got my customers and they're loyal to me. And yes, they are. They have no problem paying a dollar for your products, knowing full well that they'll always be that same shade of color. Because why? There is no other competitive color out there until they travel to the next town. And they find that in that town, there's a leather worker that also is selling the exact same products that you're, once, that you're producing. But now this leather worker, by these machines, come, by these products coming out through the use of machinery, are coming out, in some cases, different sizes, different colors, different designs on them. But my customers will never go for that. They want the good handmade products, sure, until they realize that the machine-made products 
are far cheaper. Why spend a dollar for one pair of shoes in my hometown from my leather worker in my hometown when I can spend 25 cents and get four pairs of shoes, different styles, different colors, different designs. Machinery is taking over. And that leather worker that insists on doing things his or her own way, producing them by hand, digs in the heels and says, no, I refuse to change until he realizes that dust is collecting on all of his products. The former loyal customers that that merchant thought would never change, would never go away, are now wearing the leather products from your former competitor one town over. And to make matters worse, that former competitor is now going to be opening up a shop in your hometown. Now what? By the time they relent and that merchant that was producing products by hands gives in and finally and humbly with his hat in hand goes and knocks on the door of that industrial leather worker, that industrialist knocks on the door and says, can I have a job? I'm going to be your most valuable employee. And that entrepreneur with his industrial leather shop says, really, your father was awesome. Your mother was awesome. And I know you made great products. So what skill set do you have that I can hire you for? Well, you just said it. I know how to make the greatest leather products out there. But no, I don't need that. My machines are doing that. What I need are people that know how to run the machines, fix the machines, improve the machines. But you can't do any of that because your skill set hasn't prepared you for that. And that merchant fades away, goes into bankruptcy, eventually ends up hopefully working for somebody else. They will go out of their way though to protect their trade. They'll produce a long educational process to make sure that by the time you have what it takes to produce some of the finest products in the world coming out of a machine or not, you will go through your stages as an apprentice. You will go through your stages as a journeyman before you can finally be able to be called a professional in whatever field that you're engaging in. All of this, ladies and gentlemen, is because of the role, needless to say, of technology. Technology is what is making this work. Specifically within the United States, as this is the series on in, in American history, not world history, we look at this American system of manufacturing. This whole idea of mass production, that by itself is not the key to financial success that the likes of Henry Ford were able to recognize. It's not that it's not important, but the key that goes hand in hand or dovetails with mass production is that other part of it, interchangeable parts. That is so important. That's the reason why Henry Ford will eventually buy Mercury. Henry Ford will eventually work a deal with Henry Leland and buy his line of cars named after the 16th president of the United States, Lincoln. When Ford acquires Lincoln motor cars as well as Mercury, what he'll do is make sure that every window uses the same type of part, every door. Every piece of the engine as much as possible. This is the reason why well into the 21st century, you can take 
when Mercury still existed. You could take an engine out of one model of a Mercury and put it in a Lincoln or put it in a Ford. For years, well over 10 years, one of Ford's most popular, most reliable engines was the 302 V8. The 5.0 liter 302 engine was extremely popular because, again, of its reliability. No surprise that that 302 was the standard engine in the Ford Crown Victoria, the Mercury Grand Marquis, and the Lincoln Town Car, and the Lincoln Mark series. That's part of the reason why when I used to buy and sell Lincolns, part of the reason I bought the Lincolns is because it was the highest end of Lincoln's production line. Yes, but isn't it the most expensive to fix? On the surface, yes. But you see, whenever I needed a window motor for the power windows or the mechanism for the power locks, I didn't go to Lincoln parts because you're right, I would have paid a premium. I went to Ford parts, or better yet, I went to the junkyard and took apart the door of a Ford Crown Victoria, Lincoln's lowest line of the Panther platform bodied cars. And I took that car, that automobile's power window motor and door lock motor or switch mechanisms, because again, they were interchangeable. Ladies and gentlemen, standardization of parts and the mass production will become the standard tenant, will become the foundation, the bedrock for America and by, by extension, Western European powers to make more money than they ever dreamed possible. To the point that the standardization and mass production will not just stay to the United States alone, nor will it just apply to products. It will even apply to the directions that one needs to put a product together in your own home. This is not an American idea. I'm talking specifically about the Swedish company, IKEA, I-K-E-A. Open up any one of IKEA's pieces of furniture, as I have done myself, as my wife is a huge fan of IKEA products. I'm looking at a couple of bookshelves here in my home office that is an IKEA product. The genius of IKEA is that they can sell worldwide and have one set of directions that's applicable to anybody in any country speaking any language. Why? Because there's no words. You don't have to worry about translating a word from Swedish to French or to English or to Chinese or Japanese. You get the idea. Oh, sure, there's words in the very beginning, a couple of pages, in fact, of over 30 different little paragraphs of words in, again, 30-plus languages, which more or less is their CYA language, their quick and brief introduction. But after that, once you get to step one, you're going to follow that little pencil character as that person in the in the set of directions that you can't even determine whether it is a male or a female, begins to start putting your piece of furniture together. And what do you do? You follow his or her actions as he or she points to the parts that you have to get from the bag or the box and then points to the part of the furniture that it goes into. If you're doing it correctly, the person is smiling. If you're doing it incorrectly, the person is frowning. 
and then points to the idea of what might have gone wrong if the furniture doesn't look like what it does in the images of whatever step that you're on. So this idea, again, standardization of parts, mass production, becomes the bedrock of industrialism throughout the world. Clearly, this is a significant set of improvements for those countries that are willing to get dirty, that are willing to face what an industrial world really looks like. And yes, on the surface, it seems like it's nothing truly but good times to come. And in many cases, it will be. But there are going to be a couple of drastic downsides. And that's what we're going to take a look at in our next podcast on American history when we start looking at the negative impacts of industrialism in the United States. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week. 